0: Enfolding every race, nation, and language. Then you're considering Catholicism. Well, Corey, we're continuing our exciting January afternoon of discussing the intellectual legacy of Pope Benedict XVI. Yes. And we just talked about... And by the way, I say that without irony. Right, right. No, that that literally is exciting. (laughs) At least to us. Yeah. Well, it should be to
1: everybody. It should be. I hope. (laughs) And I can show reasons. I can't just, I won't just assert it. Yeah.
0: Right. Pope Benedict XVI was an intellectual giant in Catholicism, Joseph Ratzinger prior to becoming Pope and his contributions to Catholicism in the 20th and 21st century, I think will last for many, many centuries. And so we're sort of honoring him by talking about that legacy and his contributions. And we just finished a conversation, with, which was the last episode, about his synthesis of faith and reason, his mm-hmm. famous Regensburg lecture. Today, we're going to talk about another thing that he's almost equally well known for. And that is a phrase that got used over and over again. You were going to give us the background on it, but it's a phrase that he coined called the dictatorship of relativism. Right. So why don't you unpack for us what he meant by the dictatorship of relativism? Right. So
1: this is an idea that he um, sort of explored throughout his career, but the the phrase itself is traceable back to a homily that he gave at the, the papal conclave in 2005, uh, the one that would actually elect him. Uh, to be Pope after St. John Paul. And so he was uh, preaching to the cardinals who had assembled uh, to elect the pontiff. Uh, And what he said, among other things, was, today, having a clear faith based on the creed of the church is often labeled as fundamentalism, whereas relativism, that is letting oneself be, quote, tossed here and there, carried about by every wind of doctrine, end quote, that's Ephesians, seems the only attitude that can cope with modern times." we are building a dictatorship of relativism that does not recognize anything as definitive and whose ultimate goal consists solely of one's own ego and desires. Um, And then in another place in an an interview, he talks about the fact that in a large proportion of contemporary philosophies, they're saying that man is not capable of truth um, and that man is not really capable of of concrete ethical values either. So it's arguing this this dictatorship of relativism is saying that there is no firm truth that we can all agree on, that we can reach through reason like we were talking about um, in the last discussion. And therefore things are, things are relative and, and they devolve to being subject to the, to the desire and the ego of the individual. And so and we can, we can talk about all the implications of this, but even, even though it is a sort of dictatorship in that it, it, it rules over the person and makes them subject to their own ego and desires, as to a tyrant. It also results in actual um, political and cultural tyrannies and dictatorships as well, in which the the unmooring of society from truth allows political authorities to uh, to enforce
0: their ego and desires on the population. Great summary. So let's break that down. Let's deconstruct mm. not deconstruct. Yeah. No, I mean, let's let's yeah. break that down. Because un- there's un- a lot there. It's very yeah, concentrated. Let's, let's unpack that. Right. So let's start with this word relativism. Mm-hmm. And then we'll get to the dictatorship part. Right, right. So I think relativism, I'm and I guess that most of the people who are listening are familiar with the concept of relativism because it's it's really become a, a pretty popular idea, at least. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying relativism, but well, relativism is but the notion of the sort of decrying Relativism in our culture today. A lot of us recognize that. We recognize a moral relativism, Mm -hmm. you know, that the notion that there is no right, ultimate right or wrong, every person decides for themselves what is true, right? There's an intellectual relativism, and in all fields today, that no one can say what's true. There's your truth, my truth, right? There's a religious relativism that no one is more right than the other. And so I think most of our listeners maybe have that sense of that. And Benedict, as you say, sort of unpacks how over the last, especially 100, 150 years, Mm. relativism, you know, really became the default setting for Western culture. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. Now. The other part of that phrase, dictatorship, let's drill down just a little bit on that. How does, because I think it's in some sense, it's almost counterintuitive. Like someone would say, well, relativism is everybody like, hey man, you do your thing. You're good. I'm good. You're good. I'm good, man. You do you. I'll do me, right? Everybody do their own thing and we're all cool and everybody can go their own way. And, you know, in fact, I have friends that have, you know, gone down this path thinking that there's almost like a political solution, maybe that's not that right word, a, a political accommodation that if we just kind of went down this libertarian path, right? Like yeah. everybody do their own thing. And if everybody just could do their own thing, we'd good. And everybody just leaves everybody else alone. And everybody you sort of have
1: enclaves of different
0: beliefs. Right. Everybody and, yeah. just can do their own thing and everybody'll leave everybody else alone. But it never really works that way.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now what Bennett is getting at is two there's two levels in which it never really works that way. Relativism never really turns out to be everybody getting to do their own thing. Right. For, for I think two reasons. Right. Mm -hmm. And the first is what he's saying is relativism itself itself is a kind of oppressive dictatorship because there are no fixed points of truth. There's no anchors. There's nothing that you can appeal to so that All conversations become pointless, Mm -hmm. and it squashes anybody uh, who wants to make a case. So, for example, let's take some practical issue. Mm -hmm. Let's take abortion, for example. Right. right? And we say, "Hey, look! For some of us, we believe that life begins at conception; that that's human life, and it deserves protection as beginning at conception." Others say, "No, it." doesn't. The the problem is with saying you go your way and I go my way is that that there's a practical case of a human life at stake. Mm -hmm. And so this is why this is such a contentious issue in society is you go, yeah, but what about that human life? And if we are in a truly relativistic society where there is no ultimate truth, Mm -hmm. then we can't Take any actions, that relativism suppresses our capacity to come together and agree on anything, Or take notions of justice, notions of equity, notions of of anything. If all of that is relative, then nothing can happen. It sort of freezes everything out. Am I making Mm -hmm. sense?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Either it has that suppressing quality. Or um, Benedict talks in in the interview I was uh, referencing about um, how uh, it just ends up uh, devolving to the will of the majority. Um, So as the most people who have a particular opinion enforce their opinion on others, it's not because it's true, but because they have the
0: power. Okay, great. Because I wanted to get to that, right? right? So so in a sense, relativism itself is oppressive, but it always leads to actual oppression. Mm In the same way that anarchy, right, which is the belief in no government, never results in no government. It results in an oppressive and violent government, right? So let me just follow that analogy right, a little bit, right? There, there's a sort of, like, this kind of like, uh, I was going to say sophomoric or immature, or I was going to say idiotic notion that, you know, hey, dude. Tell if us we, how you really
1: feel. I'll tell you how I really <laughs> feel.
0: I think it's idiotic. And I think that the sort of idiotic anarchy thing is that the notion that if man, dude, if we didn't have any governments and if any rulers, then everybody would be free to do their own thing and we'd all be at peace. It doesn't work that way, because what anarchy is not: no one rules. It is the rule of the strong and the violent over the weak and the vulnerable. Yeah. Right. Okay. Everything's going to turn into the road warrior. Okay. And it's all going to turn into, right? Because as soon as we have anarchy and there is no government and there is no rules and anything else, well, there's nothing to stop the strong and the violent from coming and taking your stuff and hurting you and selling you into slavery or doing whatever else they're going to do. What are you going to do about it? Right? Right. And so what happens with the dictatorship of relativism is, as you put it, In a relativistic society, the majority, the people with the guns and the power are going to enforce their will. So let's go back to taking the contentious moral issues of our day. You know, take abortion, take uh, gender ideology, take some of these kinds of things that are very contentious, right? What you're going to say is if there is no fixed truth, the only truth that there is going to be is those who have the power Will enforce their opinion, right? And you say it's the majority, and and that's what Benedict said. I actually think that it's more complicated than that. Well, I think it can go a few different
1: ways. I mean, it's certainly possible for a dictatorship, and and you see historical examples of this. Um, I I, the one that comes to mind is like the the Soviet Revolution in Russia, where it's a it's an elite um, that enforces its will on the people. That does happen, but I think it's it's a common misconception that democracy cannot result in in tyranny or in in dictatorship, because you have equal historical um, examples uh, the most prominent one would be the Nazi regime in Germany where it it resulted from the democratic will of the people, unmoored from moral absolutes and and reasonable um,
0: discourse about truth right. I mean the first thing i mean and and the founders of democracy the American founders wrote about this extensively mm-hmm. in the Federalist papers and everything else. they said you know uh, Alex de Tocqueville you know, wrote about this mm. extensively. Democracy only works amongst a moral, with a moral people. Moral and religious people. A moral yeah. and religious people. So if you have an evil people, mm-hmm. the first thing they're going to do is vote into place evil leaders and evil laws and evil practices. I mean, you can just go back in history to wherever, the ancient Babylonians, the Romans with slavery, this, that, you know, everything up and down the line. If that's what the people want, that's what they're going to get. But I think there's another element to this. Mm-hmm. And that is what I'm going to call it's sort of the force multiplier of technology. And this is really where, at the beginning of the 21st century, this is powerful. Mm-hmm. So like, let's say, you know, we're in a country of whatever we are, 350, 400 million people, I don't know whatever it is. So one might say, well, if it's, a, if it's the dictatorship of relativism, as long as there's, you know, 200 million plus one, they're going to enforce their will. But the reality is, is that that those 400 million people are pretty fractured into, te- uh, you know, there's 10,000, there's a giant spectrum of 10,000 factions, mm-hmm. right? Technology at the beginning of the 21st century has become a force multiplier for a very small number of people to enforce their views on everybody else. And that's where the internet and broadcast media, and everything else has come into this. Mm-hmm. So the question is, and I don't I mind going there, right? Look at gender ideology. Mm-hmm. How many people are we talking about? There aren't 200 million plus one transgender people in America. There just aren't. There aren't even 200 million plus one people in uh, America who agree with transgender ideologies and transitioning children and doing all this crazy stuff, right? The promise, the internet and technology and media is a force multiplier so that a relatively small number of people who hold uh, the reins of certain institutions, academia, the media, the tech companies, and everything else can enforce that ideology. They can push it out through social media, through the internet, through kinds of things. They can mm-hmm. they can cancel people. They right, we all know how this works. You're going to get canceled if you say the wrong thing. Your podcast is going to get taken down. Your YouTube channel is going to get mm-hmm. taken down. You're going to be canceled. So the thing is, is a very small number of people can enforce that and become essentially a dictatorship, right? Mm-hmm. And relativism allows that because theoretically we would raise our hand and go, that's wrong. The problem is if you raise your hand and say, that's wrong, you're told to shut up.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a way of essentially artificially creating a majority either by persuasion because you're, you're- Putting the propaganda out there, or simply by suppression of dissent. Of th- this is the my way or the highway coming from from the top.
0: So you'll be told to shut up because number one, there is no fixed truth, and there is no fixed neural law, and you're a bigot, right? Mm-hmm. You're a bigot and a hater who's in for- trying to enforce your narrow, bigoted views on everybody else who doesn't share them, right? Mm-hmm. So you can't appeal to a understood moral law or any kind of fixed truth, right? And you're also going to be told to shut up because they have the power and you don't, you can lose your job. Like look what's happening in, in Canada and parts of Europe, pastors who are going into their pulpits and preaching a, a sermon, you know, a based on scripture references about homosexual marriage or in gender ideology. Their church is being shut down. they're being you know cancelled they're they're being pulled off the YouTube or whatever it is, so they can't propagate their message because they're told that their message is unacceptable
1: right well it, it's it's quite ironic because it's it's denying the idea of truth, but then enforcing a truth claim. um Benedict actually talked about something like this in that interview i was I was referencing. He says. In the name of tolerance, tolerance is being abolished. This is a real threat we face. The danger is that reason, so called Western reason, claims that it has now really recognized what is right and thus makes a claim to totality that is inimical to freedom. So put that on the gender ideology question. Um, it's always couched in, in the language of we now know better than we used to, we've reached the point in history. Come on, people, it's twenty twenty three. We understand these assertions about gender, and now because of that, we have to suppress tolerance for other views of gender, most especially the, the traditional and, and the Christian view on gender. So it's, it's couched in terms of tolerance, tolerating people of various gender ideological expressions, but what it actually does is it, is it suppresses tolerance of dissenting views on the subject.
0: Right. I mean, OK, so you're a parent of small children. Your kids are going to go to school. And if they're in uh, the, the school is attempting to indoctrinate them with LGBTQRST alphabet gender ideologies, you're told as a parent to shut up. And you're, they're, you're told that in the name of tolerance and relativism and all truth being equal, your truth is unequal. Mm-hmm. Right. This is like some truths are more equal than others. That's right. This is like George Orwell's animal farm. Right. Where. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually a good example of it. I mean, Orwell was pretty prophetic about this. Of course, he was writing about socialism, Marxism, but it was the same issue, which is materialism and, and, and the, the, the power dynamics of materialism mm-hmm. and Marxism, which is what this all is. And that truth comes from, you know, the, the barrel of a gun and that relativism always leads to power dynamics and the way the anarchy always leads to power dynamics Mm -hmm. so when we see the cities burning because antifa you know right little little idiotic anarchists who think they're going to go out and burn down the city and think that somehow they're issuing in an age of peace and justice and relativism right to understand that if that's where they want to go and if that's where they want to do is burn down the city and burn down authority structures or burn everything else. And the notion that this is going to cause peace and justice to erupt, what you're going to do is they're simply going to unleash. Um, it's going to come down to who, who's going to be uh, who's willing to use the most amount of violence and force, mm-hmm. um, which is why, just as an aside, I, 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 I literally hope and pray that that that, that trend stops because it, it's going to unleash. Um, bad things and it's going to unleash if you make this an existential contest um, then at some point the other side is going to fight back well and you've already seen
1: some without getting into details you've already seen some of that happening and it's only a matter of whether it continues and continues to escalate
0: yeah so dictatorship of relativism the, the, let's talk a little bit more about this idea of how this has infected the church. Sure. Because that's one of the things that that Benedict was extremely concerned about. You know, he could understand, or we can understand, that this might be the ideologies outside the church, right? That the, the secular ideologies, Marxist ideologies were by nature relativistic. If you're curious about that, I did an episode a while back on Marxism, one of our worldviews ep- episodes, and I explained why Marxism is always relativistic in its understanding of truth and, and morality. And, and so Bennett could say, okay, I get that, right? And Marxism really is an 18th century idea, not even a 20th century idea. But what he became increasingly concerned about throughout the course of the 20th century and into the 21st is this sense that the that Christianity itself or the Christian community or the church Mm -hmm. was increasingly becoming relativistic and falling under this dictatorship of relativism. You want to talk about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you see it beginning. Someone will probably argue with me and say it begins earlier, but I, I would say beginning in like the mid 19th century with the advent of like liberal, um, theology, um, especially in, in Germany, but in throughout, throughout the, the Christian world, the idea that there aren't fixed truths in theology and in morality, but rather that um, these things are are governed by sentiments, by emotion, and also by conditioned and changeable by historical reality and by the the needs of particular societies. Um, And so you have this idea again, kind of originating um, in in that time about the mid 19th century and then really coming into flower and to, to, use a metaphor that isn't really very suitable, um, in the early and mid 20th centuries. And so you have this idea, um, within lots of different Christian circles, but, but certainly heterodox, uh, Catholics trying to make this argument that the, the, uh, teachings on faith and morals of the church are not fixed, um, that they can change. And in fact, that they ought to change either because we know better or simply because we, we want them to be different based on our own societal uh, norms and trends and desires. Um, and so sort of the, the biggest um, and most public uh, fights about this, um, because we are the society that we are, um, have been in, in the realms of sexuality and the family, so redefining Marriage, or redefining sexuality or, or arguing that the church should, should affirm homosexuality or, or other forms of gender identity or abortion, as you mentioned before, or uh, relativizing away um, moral culpability for, for various kinds of sins or, or arguing really against uh, the, the idea of sin and that there are intrinsically immoral acts um, entirely. Um, and so Benedict was very much aware of all that. He was in the the middle of all of these uh, conflicts in theology and in, in morality it going on in the church in the 20th and into the 21st century. And so, yeah, he certainly had all of that in mind too, and not just the secular part of it.
0: Yeah. I, I, if we were to go back and, which this isn't a course in history of philosophy, mm-hmm. but we could see how... There were this gr- these gradual movements away from objectivism right. in philosophy towards the sort of relativism of truth. You know, we could go back to the nominalism concepts of, um, you know, Duns Scotus and Occam and the debates with Anselm about, you know... Mm-hmm. Sure, in the, the high Middle Ages. Yeah, high yeah. Middle Ages. And then we could you know, move into kind of enlightenment concepts and everything else. And then we could get into, you know, Barclay and Hume and everything else in the 17th century, blah, 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 blah. That's not probably interesting. Don't worry. Don't worry, but we won't. (laughs) But where I think the point that I would, that I think Corey's making we would make is that there was gradually this sort of notion that there was no fixed truth Mm -hmm. that we can find and no reasonable truth that can be found. What really happened in the 20th century, in terms of an acceleration of that, was the last thing that was really kind of anchoring much of the Christian world to any kind of objective truth was scripture. And so the project in the 20th century was to deconstruct scripture. And you had biblical studies that began to apply the historical critical method to scripture and all these other kind of things to deconstruct the scriptures. and and basically to argue that the bible was untrustworthy. Mm-hmm. Right? It didn't say what you think it says, and if you think it says this, that's untrustworthy anyway. anyway. And that the bible at the end of the day is a collection of ancient, confusing, contradictory texts that, uh, that that are unreliable and don't convey anything more than what you want them to convey. And once you sort of made that shift you opened up near the end of the 20th century for what, for the progressive world is very exciting projects because now you could insert into scripture almost any idea that you wanted to assert, even mm-hmm. if it was contrary to the testimony of 2000 years of understanding. Mm-hmm. So, because you brought it up, right? Let's take the homosexuality, right? It is, goes without saying that you can walk into almost any university, any college in America, I mean, not, let's say 90% of them, and you can walk into the biblical studies department, you can probably walk into 70% of the Protestant seminaries in America and find professors who will write books and tell you straight up that the New Testament teaches same-sex marriage. Sure. And you go, where do you get that, Right. And they will walk through all these texts and deconstruct these texts and say, well, Paul was really arguing for this. And you go, how do you get that? And this is going to get into something we're going to talk about in the next episode. because right, we're going to talk more about biblical scholarship. Biblical scholarship, right? But just to touch on that for a second, right? So what they did is there was this hermeneutic of rupture, this discontinuity. So you could say, wait a minute, are you trying to tell me that uh, when it says X, Y, Z, uh, that X, Y, Z doesn't mean X, Y, Z? Yeah, X, Y, Z doesn't, it means whatever we want to say it does. And you go, right, but everybody who lived in the first century, right, we can go back and we can look at the lives of the apostles and the people Mm -hmm. around the apostles, and they all understood what Paul was talking about or Mm -hmm. what Peter was talking about. And they go, well, doesn't matter what they thought. We're going to insert our own reading of it. And so at one point, so at a certain point, biblical studies or appeal to scripture is useless. Like I'm of an age where when i, you know, became a christian was doing apologetics and was in grad school and everything else you could still in an argument with somebody at least still appeal to a scripture reference sure. there's no point in it in a conversation if i want to have a discussion with somebody about you know a contentious issue like same sex marriage in christianity appealing to chapter and verse in the bible is pointless because what has been grounded is this relativism of biblical truth and a relativism of actually the texts themselves so, the texts themselves have no real meaning. And what it then is going to come down to is the dictatorship of that. Who is running the seminary? Who is running the college? Who is running the denomination? Who runs the publishing houses? Who controls the tech companies? Who decides whose videos? Who decides who gets hired as a professor? Who decides who gets booted as a pastor? And it does, in the end, des- descend to this kind of power game. Mm-hmm. And the power game at the moment like just surveying the playing board, like the, like if we're looking at the chess board, the state of the board today is that traditional, I, mean, I hate that word. I sort of hate that word, but orthodox, mm-hmm. biblical orthodox, historic Christianity is definitely in a weak position on the chess board. Right. The power position, m- most of your denominational centers, most of your, almost all of academia, media, publishing, Government is all held by um, sort of liberal progressives in terms of, of an understanding of moral truth and and Christian truth, and so those of us who are want to be faithful to the historic Christian faith are in a um, weak position. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, but uh, to kind of bring it back to to Benedict and what he says about this is that he you you've talked especially in the last uh, discussion we had about both being not afraid and, and being not confused. I think they're they're related to each other because we can be not afraid if we are not confused, if we have something solid that we have in our minds that we're not muddled about. And and that's what Benedict talks about here in in that same homily he says he ref- is following up on what he said about um relativism, not recognizing any definitive anything definitive and, and having a goal consisting only of achieving your own ego and desires. And he says that we, however, have a different goal, the son of God, the true man. He is the measure of true humanism. An adult faith is not a faith that follows the trends of fashion and the latest novelty. A mature adult faith is deeply rooted in friendship with Christ. It is this friendship that opens us up to all that is good And gives us a criterion by which to distinguish the true from the false and deceit from the truth and deceit from the truth. And so he's he's showing us the way there really is that in all of this confusion and in these assertions that are being made through power and and trying to be enforced on us, that if we cling to friendship with Christ and we're not um, confused about that being the center of our of our life and of our faith and and the fact that Christ is. Is the truth, and that he, both through faith and reason, like we talked about last time, helps us to understand the difference between the truth and the lie, that we can withstand the dictatorship of relative.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, uh, n- like I said in the last episode, I'm, I'm, you know, this close to getting those tattoos <laughs> on my wrist, right? Um, be, be, but, but, but not being afraid. Mm-hmm right? And not being confused, or to put it in positive terms, being courageous and Mm clear-eyed clear and a clear understanding does not mean that we aren't realistic about the challenges we face.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that makes the challenge more obvious to us.
0: And so we have to be realistic about where we are, that we are in a defensive position. Mm -hmm. You know, we, you and I way back did in our first book clip episode, uh, talked about Um, The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, great Catholic, Mm -hmm. I think we argued it was the greatest Catholic novel of the 20th century. And I have often thought this since entering the Catholic Church. So maybe we'll kind of end with this allusion To the Lord of the Rings. So for those of you who uh, at least watch the Peter Jackson movies, you'll at least know what we're talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the enemies of Mordor, you know, spilling out to take over the world or whatever. And there is the city of Minas Tirith, right? This city on the rock there. And it is the last bastion um, that's that stands, you know, in the way of the forces of Mordor overrunning, you know, Middle Earth. And I, one of the reasons I joined and I had conversations with my Protestant friends at the time like why would you become Catholic and I go because because the Roman Catholic Church is minus tirith. It is the last bastion in the Christian world of the historic apostolic Christian faith where the, mm-hmm. the apostolic Christian doctrine is is still held and if it falls Middle Earth will fall, right? Mm-hmm. If it falls Christianity there will be pockets there'll be Hobbits living here and there and people in the woods and a few writers riding around in the plains of Rohan. But the Roman Catholic Church needs to stand and, and be defensive. Now, in Minas Tirith, I know you know this, right? You had uh, the steward Denethor who was looking into the Palantir, mm-hmm. right? And and Sauron was feeding him all these images to make him despair and be confused. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're getting pretty deep in the weeds weeds here. But if you saw the Peter Jackson movies, remember this. But when Gandalf shows up, right, or mm-hmm. whatever, he says, look, he's not being a Pollyanna about this. He's not arguing right. that He those, knows exactly how bad this situation the situation is the situation is pretty bad. And look, you can look across, <laughs> you know, the 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 field there and you can see, you know, the the armies of the orcs coming and with their siege engines and everything else. I'm being pretty realistic about where we're at. But I refuse to look into that and take despair or to become confused about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and that's why we're doing this podcast. That's why. And this is just, man, we're one tiny little, you know, itsy bitsy little soldier in, you know, the army here. But, you know, around the world, Catholics and Christians and Orthodox Christians of all stripes have to stand up to the dictatorship of relativism to use whether we have, you know, two listeners or, you know, 2000 or 20,000, we have to use every opportunity we have to defend the historic Christian faith, to defend objective truth and stand up against the dictatorship of relativism wherever we can. And that's, I think, one of the legacies of Pope Benedict Sixteenth, you know, mm-hmm. and that's why I want to have, you know, don't be confused on my wrist, right? Mm-hmm. Because I refuse to be confused and I refuse to despair, but but we have to dedicate ourselves to fighting this fight.
1: Yeah, well, and, and I mean, I I love that metaphor, and and it, it's inspiring to me. And I think that Pope Benedict he shows us how we stand up. Um, he talks about in this interview that he, comparing it to the dictatorship of relativism, which rules through power, he says that the truth comes to rule not through violence or power, but rather through its own internal power, not not by forcing itself. And, and he talks about how. Um, when Jesus comes before Pilate and professes himself as to be the truth, he then doesn't defend the, himself as the truth with legions, but rather makes it visible through his passion and thereby also implements it. So we have to be willing to suffer and to not impose through through power or through violence, um, but to to make the truth known, to suffer the consequences if need be. But like to, uh, to compare it again to the Lord of the Rings, the way that the power of Mordor is broken is not through um, you know the vast army of of Gondor. They they are almost overrun in that final battle. They they're willing they are to die if necessary, defending the West. Um, and Frodo destroying the ring is not defeating evil through power and violence. It's through self sacrifice. Uh, well, yeah, and, and I, I, so, so I think Benedict is pointing us to a, a Christocentric way of 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 seeing this conflict between the dictatorship of relativism and
0: the truth. Well, you and I are 100 percent agreement on this. But I, but I want to make a point though, though, to avoid the confusion, right? Because you sure. should not be confused. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Obviously w- we don't win this fight. Mm-hmm. And I do think it's a fight. We fight oh, yeah. not against flesh yeah. and blood, but of against course. powers and principalities. Yeah. Obviously, we don't win this fight by violence Mm -hmm. but we win it by action right yeah and part of that action is forceful action but it may mean setting up our own tech companies it may mean setting up Mm -hmm. our own colleges setting up our own schools it may mean homeschooling our children it may mean building our own publishing houses it Mm -hmm. may mean doing those things i mean that's how christians built Mm -hmm. uh christendom in the first place Mm -hmm. and so part of it is is that i i do think it takes we're going to have to, in the 21st century, take real proactive action. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. it's not just, and I know you're not saying this, but it's not just, you know, being sort of um, pacifist witnesses. Mm-hmm. It is forcefully staking out and building an alternative culture and building churches and parishes and educational systems and families and our and, and and in some degrees you know we've talked about this, we may need to look at raising our children to go into occupations because there's whole occupations and vocations anymore that a, that a faithful orthodox Christian can't even occupy without losing their job anymore we may need to build our own businesses our own industries our own schools our own homes our own you know whatever mm-hmm. yeah, yeah no I mean
1: give you I, last, I, I'll give, I, you, I'll give I, you the last one yeah no i I agree and, and if um, my um reading of of benedict or my uh Analogy to the Lord of the Rings sounded sort of quietistic. That's that's not how I meant. I mean, Christ going to the cross is the most active thing yeah. that he could have done. He right. did he did it fully actively, and he rose from the grave actively by by his own power, by the power of the truth. And any any look at the life of Pope Benedict would see a man who is certainly not passive. Um, he he actively resisted falsehood in. all of the different stages of his career um, and was hated for it um, and vilified for it um, by people who were um, in favor of the kind of dictatorship of relativism that he, he opposed. So, so yeah, I certainly think there are many different ways of being active. I think the contrast is not between passivity and activeness, but the kind of action that
0: Christ calls us to in the truth. Well, and, and it's going to take every Christian, every Catholic, uh, every person of good conscience, right, um, finding how they and their sphere of influence can act to begin to rebuild a culture of truth and goodness and beauty, and to transmit that, and in some sense to rebuild the. Uh, I hate to use the word, of, the word Christendom, but again, to, to rebuild Christendom one brick at a time. This is that Cardinal George, you know, quote sure. about, yeah. right? You know, someday, you know, I will- uh, I'll die
1: know, peacefully in my bed. My I, successor will die in jail and his successor will die as a martyr.
0: But then it's the last part of that quote. Mm. And then after that, what the church will rebuild society as it has done so many times before. Right. And we are at the point where we need to start rebuilding society.
1: Right. And and that is essentially what Pope Benedict was arguing in that conclave homily, as he's saying um, to the bishops who are there to elect a pope, this is the duty that's on us as the guardians of the deposit of faith, as the, the shepherds of the flock. We have to develop that adult faith in, and friendship with Christ in the flock. And... The way that the Holy Spirit chose to do that was by electing Joseph Ratzinger as Pope Benedict XVI.
0: And my hope is that the bishops of the Catholic Church will continue that project. Mm-hmm. And well, I have faith that they will because the Holy Spirit is in the church. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. greg at com.